This is the Sexy Programming Podcast with Ben and Joe. <clears throat> Yellow phlegm. Nice. Yeah. Save it for the air. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, this is Ben Orenstein, and this is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, August 10th, and I'm here talking to our CTO, Joe Ferris. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good. How are you, Ben? I'm doing pretty well. So one thing that you listed that we could maybe talk about was objects versus structs. Mm-hmm. Can you go into what you were thinking with that? Sure. Um, so traditional object-oriented uh best practices say that you should hide all of your data behind objects right and that objects should expose no data essentially as much as possible and only be uh, exposed behavior which works for almost every application that's how i start out all of the time if you look at data structures they're sort of the opposite right so they expose only data and they have no behavior so if you do more traditional functional programming then you'll have a bunch of functions that take data structures but the actual structures themselves have no behavior mm. But one of the things that people don't really think about when they're making their object graphs is that objects are actually really weak to adding new functions, right? So um, Robert Martin talks about this. And one of the examples he gives is if you have a shape hierarchy. So you have like square and rectangle and circle. And then you want to draw these shapes or you want to get the area. If you want to add new shapes, objects are really convenient for that, right? Right. Because they have all the, you know, they have all the same functions. So any algorithm that's trying to draw shapes or calculate, uh, you know, how much space uh, shapes take up can just delegate directly to the shape. And they don't have to care about the fact that it's a new shape. But um, the opposite opposite is true for adding new behavior. So, for example, if you want to add a new function, like every shape can now invert itself. Right. If you're using an object graph, then you have to add it to every existing object. Whereas if you're using data structures, they're immune to that kind of change. Right. So I think his point was that object-oriented programming and functional programming have the opposite strengths and weaknesses, right? Well, specifically using encapsulated objects and using data structures. Okay. So, for example, you don't need to use a total functional style, and you don't need to use a functional programming language, certainly, to take advantage of data structures. Right. Um, A data structure is just an object that doesn't have behavior. It just has data. So, for example, on Ruby, if you just have um, an object that takes them out of attributes and its initializer and then exposes them using readers, that's a data structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you find that you keep adding new behaviors rather than new types, you might decide to try and optimize by using data structures. Because data structures are better at new... You can give them new behaviors by writing the functions that take them. Right. Well, so, for example, if you have a, a draw function that takes a data structure, and then you check the type of the data structure and, you know, draw the types you don't, or draw the types you understand, mm-hmm. then when you add a new type that existing functions don't understand, there's no breakage. So, for example, in a compiled language, you actually could have compile errors if you add, um, you know, if you add new types, mm-hmm. or, I'm sorry, if you add new functions and don't implement them everywhere. And in a language like Ruby, you'll get no method errors. But if you're using data structures and functions and then using, you know, a case statement, which is generally considered an anti-pattern, you're actually more immune to that kind of change. Mm-hmm. Maybe a more traditionally accepted object-oriented approach to doing that rather than just using a case statement everywhere would be to use a visitor. Okay. Um, so in traditional languages that can overload the parameter type, in a visitor you can just have the same method... Um, accept that accepts an object that it should visit and then um 
you can have different implementations of that function for each type. Mm. So for example, on the shape, you would have one method implementation that accepts a square and one that accepts a circle and then maybe a default one that accepts any kind of shape. And then you're immune to new kind of shapes that you don't understand. Gotcha. You can do the same essential thing in Ruby, either using a case statement or by calling different methods from each shape that you visit. Right. So I've heard people, I think even Bob Martin, say that he thinks case statements are often a smell. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Do you yeah, agree? I, certainly. Um, and, you know, Martin Fowler in the book Refactoring talks about how you can refactor out almost every case statement. Mm. But um, I do think that, so, you know, I would prefer usually to use something like a visitor or something a little bit more uh, well encapsulated than a plain old case statement like mm-hmm. using is a in ruby is is a smell certainly but it's, Always, it's not necessarily well it's a so a smell is something that uh looks like there might be a problem right right right, right. so you shouldn't fix every smell you should you should just see you know why does it smell right maybe it smells for a reason maybe something else was smellier yeah right exactly um because you it know it smells less now <laughs> right yeah I mean, there's, there's a cost to everything right so it's not like there's any win-win everything is perfect solution for almost any problem totally um so, for example, in the example of a, a shape system, if you find that you keep adding new operations that work with shapes, then the case statement is actually better than using traditional uh, polymorphism, right? Uh, why? Because when you add the new functions, the existing, or I'm sorry, when you add new uh, types, the existing functions are immune to those new types. If you're using a case statement in the functions? Right. Because you just ignore the types you don't understand. Versus in a traditional polymorphic, you know, you just dispatch to the object. Uh-huh. You're going to get a, a no method error if you get a type you don't understand. Oh, I see. Which in some cases is a benefit, right? Like depending on what you're doing, mm-hmm. it may be, you know, like the kiss of death to silently ignore things you don't understand. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, that is what you want. Hmm. So going back to sort of case statements as a smell, I had I experienced this uh, last week where we had basically, I'm working on a project that has certain types of campaigns, as in like quests to get new customers. And uh, through so a little bit of lack of judgment, we added a type field onto campaign because we suddenly had a new kind of campaign that was really similar to the old campaign, but now it's slightly different. And so we were like, oh, well, there's just, there's just two types of campaigns and we can check on this, this type field in there. And the smell that started, sh- I mean, that's, that's sort of a smell on its own, I know now, but what really started showing up was case statements um, uh, all over the code as we tried to add the third type that come along. So mm-hmm. now it's like, well, I need to check over here if it's one of these three types of campaigns. And then in the view, I need to do this. And then over here. And, you know, we had basically broken the sort of the rule of polymorphism of sending the same message to different objects. And we were instead sending one message to objects with a type field on it. Mm-hmm. And so that case statement was like, okay, this is, this is the, the moment I really knew that like this couldn't, couldn't keep going on. And was, we were definitely getting hurt by it. Mm-hmm. So refactoring that out into different classes has been painful but uh now that everything's all split out everything is actually a lot cleaner and nicer right yeah and that'll make it easier for every new type you add exactly but for example if you kept adding new behaviors that worked with campaigns then it might be easier not to do that right might be better to use a visitor that understands that structure of a campaign interesting and then you could just keep adding new visitors for each new behavior and so the visitor visits the different campaign types. Mm-hmm. It's usually more useful with more complicated data structures. Okay. But for example, if you have, let's say you have a, um, an interactive menu structure. So you have a hierarchy of menu items and then each 
menu item can map to some either like a file or maybe a URL or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so chances are at some point during the lifespan of that project, the, the data structure is kind of uh, mature, right? And yep. you, you don't keep adding new types. Well, let's say, at least for this example, that's the case. Mm-hmm. But you might keep adding new things you do to it. Like you might want to be able to copy a menu to another place. You might want to be able to index a menu to get like a list of the items at all levels, things like that. Okay. Um, and every time you add one of those operations, if you're using traditional polymorphism, you need to keep adding functions to all of the different types, right? Right. Which is annoying. And it means that every object in that graph, like your menu, your item, your file, your URL, has every one of those concerns on it. Right. Or you can go in the opposite direction and say, like, okay, I'm going to decorate all of them. But then you need a parallel decorator for every concern, Mm -hmm. which is even worse, right? Yeah. Uh, Whereas if you use a visitor, you have the object graph that understands the base relationships between these objects. And then you would have a visitor that understands each additional behavioral concern, like navigating the menu, uh, caching the menu, copying the menu. Interesting. So who, who calls what in that pattern? Like what, what gets passed where? Uh, in the visitor pattern? Yeah. So what you would do is um, you'd have an accept method mm-hmm. on your, your objects that are part of the graph. Uh-huh. And then you would call visit with uh, yourself, basically, from that object on the visitor that you're given. So then, accept takes a visitor? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you pass in the visitor into the accept method on each menu, and then call visit on the visitor, passing in yourself. Right, and then the menu would understand how to navigate itself. So the visitor doesn't have to understand because the menu, for example, will tell all its items, oh, hey, you should accept this visitor. And then they would say, well, I'm an item, and I know that I have a file, so I'm going gotcha. you know, to tell my file to accept this visitor. And so, so the visitor just can just wait for things to tell it to visit. Interesting. And so, so like, the, if the menus have a nested structure, a menu can say, visit myself, and then, by the way, visit all my children as well. Right. And in that way, you can isolate that concept of the structure in one place, mm-hmm. which is nice. So all the different visitors, all the new operations you add, don't need to be aware of the structure. Right. It also means that, as a bonus, if the structure changes, uh, so, for example, if you started out sort of flat, and then you decided you want nested menu items, yeah. then the visitors almost certainly won't have to change at all. Interesting. So the visitor just needs to know about, hey, I'm getting past different types of objects and do something to them. Mm-hmm. So is there is there a case statement hiding in there maybe in the visitor? Well, it's, it's not a case statement, but it is similar to a case statement. You're right. And um, the reason that that could potentially be a smell is that if you are adding new objects, that means you have to modify every visitor, right? Right. So if you think that's something that you'll be doing or if it's something you've found you've been doing, um, so, for example, you know, you have file URL, and now you want to add, I don't know, email. Then you have to add visit email to every visitor. Right. Um, so you really need to, you know, as your system evolves and you get used to working with it, you have to figure out what you keep adding, what's hard to change. You can't take one approach for every problem. Totally. Because, you know, they, they have different characteristics. Yeah. My general approach is to assume that the traditional polymorphic approach will work because it usually does and um although a visitor is elegant for that problem it doesn't take as much advantage of the object-oriented language you're using as polymorphism does Mm -hmm. and so you know i I lean heavily in that direction if i can possibly solve it with polymorphism morphism without having that you know shotgun surgery problem then yeah because i'll use that polymorphism is effectively leaning on a language construct to help you 
right? Right. Whereas a visitor is sort of a higher level mm-hmm. concept. Cool. Um, so yesterday we were talking about adding shared behaviors to active record objects and uh, discussing some of the advantages of, or the disadvantages, I guess, of modules versus composition. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you summarize that real quick, just what we were talking about? Sure. So um, modules in Ruby are a form of inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so they have all of the disadvantages of inheritance and the age-old composition versus inheritance problem. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, in Ruby, there's no, there's no clean division between the module and the client class. So it's really easy for those concerns to leak across various mixed-in modules. Mm. Um, another problem that drives me crazy is I, I hate it when I can't find where a method is defined. So if I'm in a method on a class somewhere or even another module, um, and this happens to me a lot when I go source diving in Rails, you know, you'll find something like, okay, render with layout. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to just search for that method in here on this class because I'm in the class, and then it's not there. And so then, you know, you look for maybe an object it might be defined on, but it's not because it's mixed into a module. So then you have to search the entire list of modules. And in a lot of cases, you know, for any uh, sufficiently complicated project, Rails being one of them, you'll find multiple definitions. Mm-hmm. So then you have to figure out which module is being mixed in, which one has precedence, which one, like when you call super from a method, are you calling super in module A, module B, a super mm. class? What's going on? Right. Uh, whereas if you compose, if you make a separate class for a concern like, say, layouts, then you would know exactly what object you're talking about mm-hmm. because the object would be initialized somewhere in that class in the file you're looking in um, or at least passed into it. And then you'd be calling a method on that object. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is figure out what the implementation is for like layout renderer. And then once you find that, you know exactly what method you're talking about. So Kent Beck calls this uh, the method object. And you have a bunch of methods on a class. And the basic refactoring is you're pulling out these methods into their own class uh, and in that original class, you're just instantiating the new class and calling like a run method, like a go method on it, effectively. Mm-hmm. And you're passing in everything that it needs to operate. And this is actually something I've been doing a lot in my code. I'm almost getting addicted to these things, but it, it really seems to clean up a lot of stuff. It's like everything related to this one little topic is in one place. It has a really small public API and has some hidden private details. Um, and it definitely has, I think, has, has cleaned up a lot of stuff I've been working on, mm-hmm. um, especially these sort of like God classes that develop like user for example in our a lot of our rails apps uh, i've been trying to pull out more and more things like that and it's and had a lot of success with it mm-hmm. yeah and you know composition versus inheritance and the whole module thing extends beyond just method objects you know you can have more complicated behaviors um because one of the weird things about modules in ruby is that although the module itself can't have any state it can refer to the state of the object it's mixed into mm. um which i personally think is a horrible idea and leads to the problems we've had like with Thoughtbot's paperclip gem is fairly difficult to refactor because the way the um, the way the storage handlers were originally implemented was as mixins, which is definitely con- convenient as you're developing it originally um, because you don't have to worry about do I pass the state, do I make a singleton, do I, you know, all that kind of problem seems to just disappear. But then a few months later, you realize that now everything is referencing state on another object, right? Like a, a module is referencing the state on the object it's mixed into. Mm-hmm. And then there are these weird interdependencies between modules. Like this module sets up the state on the object, but this module uses it. But it's not explicit because it's never actually instantiated. It's never actually passed. It's just sort of implicitly available because self is the client class. Right. Yeah, I like that. I'm reading this book that I really like right now called uh, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they talk about is trying to 
tease out implicit relationships and give them a name and make them explicit in the code. And that sounds like a perfect example here because you have something in the code that happens to be a certain way and work a certain way because if you plug everything together correctly. But it's not named, and it's also not super obvious. So when you come back to it a year later, it's, it's hard to understand. Right. Another disadvantage to modules is they're only reusable through inheritance, which is a, you know, like a class static when you write the, the code kind of thing and not a runtime kind of thing. Hmm. So if you encounter a situation where it's convenient to get at a piece of shared functionality or extracted functionality that you've put in a module, if the idea of using that module is that you mix it in, it's not possible to use it runtime easily. Um, so for example, if you just run a, a console, you can't just say like, oh, okay, I'm just going to take this module and you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this logger method on it, right? You have to mix it into something before it can be used. Oh, right, yeah. So you can try to, like, extend self in the console and see if that works. Hmm. But if it has any kind of state it's dependent on, then that's weird. Um, and then figuring out how you initialize that state is not going to be clear because it's never actually... There's no, there's no constructor, right? Right. So it's just expecting some client class that you don't have. Mm-hmm. With some data you may or not have set up. Right. And anything that works like that, that is, uh, you know, like class level and not runtime level is viral. And that it means that um, it's, you know, like any static function can only depend on other static functions. Right. Uh, I didn't follow that. So, for example, if you mix something into a module, right, you can only use it from the module. And that also means that um, that all the things that use it have to behave like that, too. Right. So you end up with this like module economy. Okay. So as an example, like in Rails, there's a lot of class-oriented stuff that saves us a lot of time. Uh, so you know, we infer the table name from the, the class, and then we infer all the methods from the columns in that class. And yep. that, that's really useful. But then the fact that with our associations, we're referring directly to class names means that there's no way to do things like dependency injection, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're referring to a class. Right. And so then that means that that object refers to a class. So anything dependent on that class is not just dependent on that specific class implementation. It's dependent on all the other classes it references. Gotcha. Yep. And so it ends up being this contagious thing where if you if you program like this, if you start using mix-ins and calling class methods and calling, you know, like object.class, then mm. you can't get out of it because it, it has to go everywhere. Hmm, interesting. So you basically if you surrender sort of context independence, you have to pull in everything. You can't sort of go back. Right. It it, it ends up in the entire project interesting and so you know like that earlier example you had of using case statements that's another thing that works kind of like that right like if you if you have the type and you never encapsulate it then you have to repeat that everywhere right and there there is kind of a point of no return in every project once you've written enough code like that where you can't get back you know refactoring rails so that it wasn't class oriented would be extremely difficult right so let's change gears a little bit uh, you recently, uh, within, I guess, the last year, uh, became the CTO of ThoughtBot. Is that right? That's right. Cool. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> uh, I think things are going well. Yeah. Um, we've put in a number of things since I since I took over as CTO that I think helps the team grow. Yeah. One of the big things I've been focusing on is exchange of knowledge within the company. Yeah. You know, we've we've done a great job of hiring all these people that are good at learning, that are eager to find the best way to do something that are like fanatic about improving their own process. And one of the things I want to make sure is that those little gains don't remain isolated in pockets. You know, we work mostly on teams on separate projects and everybody has their own editor and we don't do hundred percent pairing. 
which means it's actually fairly easy for you know something as small as like a Vim macro or something as big as like learning how to use a new library or pattern to just get stuck in one person's head or at least in one team. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, so we've been I've, I've been trying to do things that help share knowledge as part of our normal day to day process. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we've started doing uh, a discussion every Friday where all the developers get together. We pick one topic frequently something that somebody learned on their team and we share it with everybody and we try and get more code in front of more people yep and i, I can i mean i think that's contributed more to my learning than almost anything else this year has really been those dev discussions i totally recommend it to any company that's not doing that and it's just an hour uh do it on fridays and i i picked up a lot from that totally worth worth the time but so most people when they step into cto positions end up writing a little less code they find it's less or less about the in the trenches stuff and a little more high level managey stuff. Are you running into that too? So far, no. Um, I'm still working on client projects four, to, four days a week, just like every other developer, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is an important part of playing the role I want to play. Mm. You know, I don't want to step too far out of the developer's shoes because I'm I'm trying to help developers, you know, improve, help developers share knowledge with each other, and mm-hmm. the best way to do that is to put in pro- put in place a process that works for me. You know, if I create a situation where I'm learning things from other people and I'm teaching other people things implicitly, then it'll work for other people too, right? So if I, you know, if I stopped developing and only intentionally learned for myself and then set up times where I could teach other people things, then that would be really inefficient considering we have this team of experts here. You know, it's not like a school where everybody is starting at a base level and there's one master. Right. Um, and so I, I wanted to make sure that I put in place... A system where everybody was teaching everybody because we have a large number of people that are good at accumulating knowledge and we just need a process for sharing it. Mm-hmm. And, and along those teaching lines, we've started this program called Apprentice.io. We're actually bringing in people that are even less experienced development wise and sort of doing intensive teaching processes with them. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to have uh, Gabe Burke Williams, who's currently running the program for us uh, in, I think, next week on the podcast. And we're going to talk about all that. So later today at our dev discussion, we're going to be talking over a style guide draft that someone has come up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a little worried that this is going to be the classic bike shed discussion. <laughs> Do you think we're going to get pulled into that? I think it definitely has the potential if you let it to take more time than it's worth. But I actually think that having a style guide and having conventions is is more important than it seems. Mm. Okay, why? I think that having a, a well-manicured code base is really important to um, to keeping the to keeping people invested in making good code. So, um, for example, I find that at home, if I keep my kitchen immaculate, like if I clean it every time after I use it, then I want to cook there. I enjoy cooking, but if there are a ton of dishes in the sink and things are generally dirty, I'm like, eh, how good could the food be if I make it here? Right. So I don't want to. And the same thing is kind of true of code. Like you're. Your formatting, you know, the way you lay things out, the consistency there, how beautiful the code actually looks beyond just, you know, readability and comprehensibility, like how it looks will affect how much you want to make good code in that file. Mm. So if you open a file and everything is laid out and there's obviously been, you know, a mind at work and not just a rabble of people dumping code in there, then you'll look at it and be like, I should really think about whether or not this function should go here. Right. Because somebody has carefully laid out this class and I don't want to upset it. Mm hmm. Totally. So I think that, you know, just spending the time to come up with conventions as a team, a lot of the time it's not even important which answer you you have, like single quotes, double quotes, uh, how you space things out, right? Like 
those things aren't going to make anything any faster. They don't really affect readability. What's important is that they're consistent and that people pay attention. And so what we're trying to do is um, just go over all these things quickly and get a yay or nay. And if there's no consensus, then I'll, I'll just pick one of them. Sure. And then uh, from then on, we should have these beautiful, consistently formatted files. Right. And we've been growing the style guide as a team for a while now. You know, every time we come up with a situation, anybody comes up with a situation where um, they're not sure which way they should do something like, oh, do we always intent this way? Do we always have parentheses here? Should I not have parentheses here? We've tried to say like, well, just always do it this way and put it in the style guide. Mm -hmm. And um, Dan recently kind of gave it an overhaul. He's worked on a few different client projects on other people's code bases lately and picked up a lot of things they did that he thought was helpful mm -hmm. this is dan croak dan croak yep mm -hmm. and he recently gave a talk at burlington ruby where he showed the style guide and talked about our process a little bit and while he was preparing for the talk he decided to throw together all those things he'd learned from the other projects with our own style guide and put it in one document mm -hmm. um but it, it's important to me that we get group buy-in that it's not just you know that we're not just handing people a list of rules, even though I don't think the individual decisions are important. I want people to feel like, you know, they're involved. Right. And so what I wanted to do is take the work that he put together, which um, is a much more comprehensive style guide than we had been building iteratively and decide as a team on each of the rules so that we end up with a comprehensive uh, group bought in style guide that will result in consistently formatted code. Mm -hmm. I like what you're saying about the when it's when it's clean, you want to keep it clean. It's sort of like I've heard this referred to as like the broken windows principle, mm -hmm. which is they look at there's a study done to determine what caused buildings to degrade over time. And they found that they could identify as soon as a structure in a neighborhood had a single broken window that lasted for a long period of time, suddenly that was like the tipping point. And the, you know, graffiti showed up and more and more things got broken. And mm -hmm. it was because the broken window was indicative of a lack of care. It was like, well, no one's really paying attention to this building, so it must not matter. Right. And we just we want to make sure that people think about what they're doing. And that's just one subtle way that you can prompt people to do that. Totally. And when, yeah, and when you add ugly code to beautiful code, you're like, ah, I feel kind of bad about this. Right. I don't want to be the guy that came in here and messed this up. Exactly. And it, you know, it helps with new team members, like you said. You know, We work with a lot of um, other teams. We'll work with some newer developers. Like you said, we have Apprentice.io. But we also we try to mentor newer developers with the client companies we work with mm -hmm. and we've found that if we're uh, very careful about the way we write the code not just in terms of the way the higher level things like patterns and interactions and object hierarchies but also the formatting if it's consistent and beautiful then people want to treat it with respect mm -hmm. the other thing is it's nice is it takes out the decision making process every time you write a string like, am I going to put this in double quotes or single quotes? Like, that's been decided. It just pulls out one little bump that your your brain might hit as you're doing it. Right. There are a lot of those little decisions that don't matter, and they should already be made for you. Although it's easy to go too far with that. I have worked on a few projects where they have such a specific style guide that it becomes difficult to understand the rules because the rules are so complicated. Mm. And so instead of it being a decision that's already made for you, you have to look up in the style guide like, I forget now if I'm assigning, but there's no return value and there's one argument. Uh, do I use parentheses or not? Right. Can I wrap this under the next line? What's allowed here? Yeah. And so if it ends up adding more time to how you can figure out you know, how you can write code, like can I write a block like this? Can I write it like that? Then uh, that's a step backwards. Sure, yeah. The classic example of something where you take it too far and suddenly it's not actually useful. Too much of a good thing. Right. So one thing we've been discussing recently is you uh, are not a huge fan of starting uh, RSpec lets, using let and subject in RSpec. 
That's true. And uh, what was your why? Why is that? So every let has the potential to become a shared fixture, which I try to avoid in general. They definitely have their place. There are times when it's too cumbersome to set something up, or it's useful enough to have this shared concept of one I don't know, reusable fixture. Mm. But I I don't like to start out with the assumption that I should have a shared fixture. Um, and the reason is that that means that the setup, the stuff you're working with in your test is far away from the stuff you're actually testing. Mm-hmm. And let's are this weird memoized, uh, like almost like a variable, but they're actually, you know, methods that are defined. Um, and they look like variables. It introduces every time for me, this anti-pattern called the mystery guest, okay. where you look at your test and you'll have something like, you know, there are a few lines you understand like, okay, user equals create user. And then you'll say user sign up for event. And you immediately your reaction is, where did event come from? Right. What is event? And, you know, it's, it's strange because, like I said, if the previous line was user equals create user, you also don't really know what the user is, right? You just know that it came from create user. Yep. But just that little step helps me so much to know, like, okay, this is a local variable. That's a very easy to understand concept. And it came from this method. All I have to do is find this method. And I know it's in this variable. Right. Versus event is like, whoop, he just showed up. Sure. Like, now I have an event here, apparently. And so then you can find the let and that's there. So, you know. So, the, so the vertical distance hurts the understanding in that. Definitely. And the fact that there's no explicit step of saying this is the event. The mm. fact that it's just, by the way, there's an event. Right. Hope you yeah. got that. Yeah. And the other thing that I find is that let's, um, at least I don't think, are parameterized. Methods can be parameterized, right? So you can have a factory that takes attributes. You can make a, a method that takes uh, arguments. Mm-hmm. You can have a class that takes things to the initializer and has a method that takes arguments. But a let is just this global thing. It's almost like a global variable. And so it's very easy to fall into the trap of writing multiple tests that use the same fixture, the same let, that aren't really related. So you might make a user that has a specific name because you're testing the name in one test, and then you give it, you make sure it has, uh, you know, some posts because you need a user that has some posts for another test. And then you get to like third test and you're looking back at the other ones and you're like, I, I don't, I don't know what's important on this user. Right. And so just because programmers like to be consistent and you try to, you know, not duplicate things. If you put, a, if you put a, pack, a practice in place of using lets, it means that you are implicitly always sharing more than you need to versus coming up with a system where you build the bare minimum user and only specify what you need. Hmm. You need, you, you're getting more than you need because you have to put in specific details for every individual test in that one let for the user. Right. So first of all, after a certain point, it becomes a balancing act where it's hard to figure out, like, well, can I add another post to this user or will that break an existing test? Mm. But it also, it makes it less clear what the actual test is. You know, if you just say, if you have a shared user and you say uh, user post count should equal three, that's like, well, why? Why should it have three? Yeah. What you want to do is say, I'm creating a user. Explicitly, I'm making a user with three posts, and so their post count should be three. Mm-hmm. You don't want to see things like user full name is Ben Orenstein. Because right. it's like, uh, is it? Why? Is, is our user Ben Orenstein? Yeah. Uh, and and this, this is sort of a, a little thing, but with when you have tests that are relying on a bunch of lets, they become more annoying to extract, right? As opposed to like an it block that has everything it needs locally. Mm-hmm. That's just a, just a, a little thing, but nice. Right. So my practice is to start with local variables. I use factory girl on almost every project. And then if I need to extract something, I try to extract methods. First to, you know, local to the spec. Every 
spec or test case as a class, and you can put methods on it. And then if I need something across multiple specs, then I'll extract it to a class, or sometimes I use mixins and tests. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, after that, what I prefer to do is extract a class. And the only time that I'll use a let is in the strange case where you're trying to abstractly test that several classes behave the same way. Okay. And then I'll use a shared example sometimes. Okay. How about subject? Similar problem? Or are you okay with that one? Subject is just an anonymous let. Um, the only time I use let is for those really common cases where terseness is useful. Uh, for example, the should a matcher is like it should have many users. It should belong to whatever. It really doesn't need any more explanation. You don't need to say, like, it belongs to it because I'm building a user and user is an instance of, you know, they're so common that you can kind of take for granted that people understand the shared context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm fine using the implicit subject there. But elsewhere, not a big fan. Not a big fan. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I think that just about wraps things up for today. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for coming by and talking. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure. Now, often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email your question to info at thoughtbot.com or tweet to us at at thoughtbot. We also have a number of upcoming speaking engagements that I'd like to tell you about. Uh, I'm actually going to be presenting at the Boston Ruby Group on August 14th, and the talk is called Refactoring, a Live Coding Odyssey. I'll be doing a lot of live vimming and changing code on the fly and praying that everything works and when people are there. Uh, August 17th at Eurocamp, uh, Mike Burns is presenting. This is in Berlin. His talk is When Not to Use Object-Oriented Techniques, in which he promises to discuss the benefits of code coupling and what a continuation is. He'll also make sure to mention Monoid once or twice, so make sure to not miss that. Finally, uh, our CEO, Chad Pytel, will be presenting at Madison Ruby Conference August 23rd to 25th in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, he's be presenting on the Teaching Rails panel where he'll represent our apprentice program, Apprentice.io, which we mentioned earlier. Finally, just one more thanks. Our podcast today was recorded by Shauna Quintel and Edward Lovell, also edited by Edward and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.